Well, hey, look, before, before we do anything else, before we, we get rolling today, I just kind of want to pause. I want to celebrate real quick, okay? Because if you didn't know, if you missed it, then today is the very first day that all five of our physical campuses are meeting in a space that we own, that the Lord has provided for us. And so can we just celebrate all that God is and has done? Man, for our people in the Gulf Coast, three years ago, we launched the campus in Gulfport. And man, it's been three years of praying and seeking God's guidance. And so we're in a space uh, down there in Gulfport that God has provided for our Jones County crew. We were able to make a move on the, uh, the building, the gables that we've been meeting in for the past year. And so it has just been a wild season where God has blessed. I mean, we're, we're so excited uh, about all that God is doing. Hey, look, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to James chapter four, the book of James. It's kind of a small book towards the end of the New Testament. So if you need to use the index at the beginning of your Bible, go ahead and do that. It's fine. Grab the app, open up the app, uh, find the message notes on there. You got time to go download the app. If you haven't downloaded it yet, you can go download the Venture Church app so you can find those message notes. But while you're, you're getting situated there, let me kind of set up uh, where we're going and kind of how we got here today, okay? So if you remember way back when uh, to the beginning of the year, which feels like four years ago, um, but back in January, we, we kicked off the year by looking at the story of Daniel. If you don't know Daniel's story in the Old Testament, it's okay, it's no big deal. Uh, Daniel was an Israelite. He was a worshiper, follower of God in the Old Testament who was taken into captivity into the, the foreign nation of Babylon. And so what we said through Daniel's story was that he, you know, he found himself at a very young age trying to navigate the space of, of following God, of staying faithful, remaining faithful in a culture and in a climate of compromise, right? And so what we said through Daniel's story is that we live in very much the same way in a hostile culture. Not so much in that as you know, believers, as followers of God, that we're gonna be beaten in the streets and thrown into jail because we showed up at church on Sunday, but in that we do live in a culture, we do live in a climate of compromise, right? That's always kind of calling and pulling us into a place of compromise. And so if we're going to remain faithful, right? We, we said that God, in, in Daniel's story, we see that God not only works in us, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our difficulties, but God works through us to confront that culture, right? And to confront that compromise. And so if we're gonna be able to do that, if we're gonna remain faithful, if we're gonna be able to confront and push back against that culture, that hostile, that compromising culture, then we gotta be confident of a few things, right? One, we said we gotta be confident of what is true of us. And I understand when I say that, I don't mean like my truth of me, right? Or your truth of you. Because the reality is, and we, we just have to acknowledge this at some level, is that you and I, man, we are incomplete. We are inadequate at best. And that's like, that's, that's not a knock. It's just, man, like, it's a reality, right? I mean, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Who knows what's going to happen next year? None of us, right? We, we, we have no idea. And so we are incomplete. We're inadequate at best. And so if I rely on a truth that originates and emanates from within myself about me, it is going to be an incomplete and inadequate truth, right? 
And so we, we got to know what's true of us according to God's word, according to God's truth. And so we, we spent some time walking through the book of Genesis where we see that we are created in the image of God, that God created us in his image. And the idea that we kept coming back to throughout the book of Genesis as we look through the different stories of the people there is that you and I, we were created on purpose and for a purpose, Right? We are created with intentionality. The New Testament says that, that you are God's handiwork. You are God's craftsmanship, that he, he designed you intentionally with your uniqueness and your weirdness and all of that. God did it on purpose, right? Like he, he created you purposely and, and intentionally, but he didn't create you and place you in a space and time to hands off walk away, right? But he placed a purpose within you a purpose to live for something bigger than yourself, greater than yourself. He created you on purpose and for a purpose. That's the truth about us. But we also, we also need to be confident of what's true of God, right? And so last week we began looking at the promises of God in his word and scripture. And, and Jeff talked about the promise of God's provision. Or he talked about Paul and Silas in prison. And as they worshiped God, God provided a way where there was no way, right? And the promise of God's provision is that, man, with God, there will always be a way where there seems and when there seems to be no way forward, right? God will provide all that we need when we need it. Which brings us to the question I want to ask today and hopefully answer today together. Is where is, what is God's promise in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst of my flaws, my failures, my inconsistencies, well, what is God's promise to me then? Right, like we talked about Paul and Silas who were praising God in the prison when God provided, but what if I can't do that? Like, what if I do more worrying than worship? Right, like we, we talked about Joseph who forgave his family for unspeakable acts. What if I can't do that? What if I'm harboring resentment and anger? What if I, what if I don't have the faith of, of Moses' mother who was able to release the blessing into the Nile? Like, what if I doubt? What if I'm not like Daniel? What, what if I, man, what if I compromise and what if I lie to avoid the difficult situations at work? What if I'm more like King David who chased after the body of Bathsheba than King David who chased after the heart of God? Like, what then? Where is God's promise to me then? And there tends to be two big buckets, I think, that we fall into more times than not. One is this idea that, hey, you know what? Love will always win, right? Like God is love and, and God's love will always prevail. God's love will always win. And so, hey, look, yeah, you know, you should probably be a little worried about some of those decisions. Probably wasn't the best idea, but man, you know what? Don't worry about it because we got eternal paradise no matter what. We're all going to spend eternity in paradise no matter what happens here, right? And, and it makes sense why we would want that to be true. Right? Because I can, I can kind of live the dream, whatever's going on, doesn't matter, not, not have to worry about any kind of guardrails in my life, and hey, I've got eternal paradise, and I'll just keep rolling. And there's truth, right? Here's what's dangerous about that. There's truth in God's love in that, but we miss the truth and the reality of God's justice. And so the flip side of that equation, and this might be where you fall, I think this, this tends to be where, where most of us fall, where we tend to fall more often than not, is that, well, God must hate me, right? Like I show up at church and here's what I hear all the time, that God hates sin. And then I'm told that I'm a sinner because I did this or I do this or I think that way. Therefore, God must hate me. 
And there's, there's a picture there of God being this, this wrathful, vengeful judge and not a correcting, loving father, right? It's all God's justice without so much the love. And, and he, the danger in those two ideas is that both of them contain a sliver of truth. Both of them contain a piece of truth, right? Like all good lies, all good lies are a distortion or a partial truth. And so there's truth in God's love and that God's love will prevail. There's also truth in God's justice, that God is lovingly just, right? And so the truth, the truth that we gotta find and cling to is a truth that holds both of those ideas in tension. And so what is that truth? Well, that's hopefully what we're gonna find today in James chapter four. So James chapter four, starting in verse one, James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. So James is not just talking about quarrels and fights and conflicts that happen externally, right? He's talking about quarrels and fights and conflicts that happen internally. The the reality and the idea that, that most of our external conflict begins with internal chaos, right? Like, do you think Will Smith is not dealing with some internal issues? Yeah, he is, absolutely. Like the dude, he's, he's battling some kind of feelings of inadequacy, some, some kind of feelings of, uh, I heard Jim Carrey or, or read where Jim Carrey said, dude's just, he, he's reached his limit. Like he's, he's extended his bandwidth. Like he's, he's exhausted, right? There's, there's some kind of internal chaos and conflict that's happening there that begins to spill out externally. James says the reason we quarrel, the reason we fight, the reason we have external conflict is because there's internal chaos specifically. There's internal chaos around our passions, around our desires. Verse two, he says this, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, and don't miss this language because this this gets serious. Do you not know that friendship with the world is anonymity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I was uh, listening to a TED Talk the other day. It was an older TED Talk from a couple of years ago. But as I was listening to it, the dude struck on uh, man, a, a truth that I thought honestly was, was pretty valuable. And I don't, I don't really even know if he quite realized uh, how valuable it was, but he said this, he made this statement. The first step to being happy is understanding why you are unhappy. First step to experiencing happiness, to being happy is understanding why you're not happy. What's causing you not to be happy? And and he argued that the reason we are unhappy in life is what's called the expectation gap. Maybe you've heard of this, the expectation gap. It's It's not a new idea, but it's basically this idea that says when our expectations of what we we believe we're gonna experience in life, what we expect to experience in life, don't match the reality of what we experience in life, we're left disappointed and frustrated and unhappy. I'll give you a simple example, right? Social media. Now, I understand we talk about social media a lot in church. I get it, but just hang with me here, okay? This is a good example here. Social media has brought what is unrealistic into a world that seems like reality, right? And so you spend enough time there watching enough ads, seeing enough pictures of, hey, if you'll just follow this 30-day plan, you can have six-pack abs, 
Or, hey, if you just do this, you can have this kind of influence. Or, or you can, man, you can have this kind of life with all of these kind of trips and with this perfect kind of spouse. And, man, your kids will always be behaved and dress perfect and eat the food if you cut it up in little stars. You know, we, we, we see all this kind of stuff that, man, if I just do what they did, then that's what I can experience in life. And then we get into life, and that don't happen. We follow that 30-day plan, and I don't have six-pack abs, right? I do all that. I cut my sandwiches up in little stars and my kids still don't eat it, right? And I still don't get to go on those kinds of trips. And what we expect to experience in life doesn't match the reality of what we experience in life. And we're frustrated and we're disappointed and we're disappointed. And so in a world where we have more technology and more advancement, excuse me, and more ability, we're less and less happy, which by the way, isn't a matter of opinion. That's like a, a measurable fact, right? Like, Every measurable statistic, uh, anxiety, depression, divorce, addiction, like all of the things that point to a frustrated and unsatisfied life, like all of those measurements and metrics are on the rise. And what scientists and sociologists are beginning to say is, yes, because we need to reset our expectations. But I want to push against that a little bit, okay? And understand, I do believe there's a lot of truth in that idea and the expectation gap. I really do. I believe there's a lot of truth there. But I, just, I want to push against that a little bit because here's the deal. Happiness is cheap. Dragging with me on that, like, like coffee makes me happy. It does. Every morning I wake up, I'm happy because I get coffee, right? But it doesn't last. I need another cup of coffee. Really, like I need to go get another cup of coffee. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to need another cup of coffee, right? And so that happiness is cheap. It takes something easy and cheap to fulfill it because it doesn't last. And I believe, and I believe what we're looking for is something a little bit different. And so if I can, if I can shift that language just a little bit, I think the truth still remains. But I, I think for us what we desire is something more like satisfaction. And so if I can push against that, man, I, I, I think I would say that The first step to being satisfied in life is understanding why we're not satisfied. And it's not just happiness, right? And so where where scientists and sociologists says, hey, we need to to reset, we need to push against our expectations. I, I, I do believe that our expectations are off track, but I think in order to find satisfaction, we need to do more than reset our expectations. I think we need to reset our desires, I think that's what scripture contends for, a reset of our desires. Because here's the deal. Lasting satisfaction isn't found in temporary desires. The reason we're not satisfied is because we spend so much time pursuing temporary desires, right? Like lasting satisfaction, soul satisfaction is not found in sex. It's found in intimacy. Like lasting soul satisfaction is not found in romantic relationships, It's found in connection and community and being known and knowing, right? Lasting soul satisfaction is not found in in a work promotion. It's found in a purpose in life and living out a purpose. There's a deeper desire. We have false flag desires that we're pursuing and we miss out on lasting soul satisfaction. And so I do believe, I do believe the first step is understanding But I believe the second step to finding satisfaction is acknowledging it, is admitting that we're in a place where we're not finding the satisfaction we desire and we want. 
It's acknowledging and admitting that, man, I've been giving into these addictions because I thought it was going to bring me the freedom and the satisfaction I wanted. And the truth is, all I do is drink more and more and more, and I never find the freedom I really want. It's acknowledging that, man, I thought that other relationship, I thought that other person at work was going to bring the satisfaction I want in life. And so I sold out, I gave everything, and now I don't have it. I'm still not satisfied. I'm pursuing something that's not giving me the satisfaction I need. Man, I thought that if I, I watched this, if I did that, then I would, I would have that peace and that satisfaction, and I don't have it. It's acknowledging and admitting where we've missed that mark. And this, man, this is where we get trapped. This is where we get stuck. It is. Because if I was to acknowledge that, if I was to admit the places that I go mentally, physically to find satisfaction that I never really get to grasp, what in the world would you think of me? What would my wife think of me? What would my coworkers think of me? I'd lose respect, I'd lose my reputation, I might lose some friends. Like I can't acknowledge that. And we get stuck in a trap of never finding the satisfaction God created and God intended for us to experience. Because we can't come to a place of admitting where it is that we struggle to find that satisfaction. So let me give you a promise. This is the first promise I want you to see. James chapter four, verse six, but, James says, remember, he just called us adulterous people, but he, God, God gives more grace. More grace than what? More grace than your sin. God gives more grace. God is greater at giving grace than you are at sinning. Man, you don't know the things I've done. Man, you don't know the choices I've made. There's no way if that came out, anybody would love me, even God. Listen, get off your high horse. Because you're not the worst sinner that's ever existed in life. I understand how bad it feels to you, but listen to me. God's better. God is better at giving grace than you are at sinning. You cannot out-sin God's grace. Grace, by the way, unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what it means. Undeserved, unmerited favor. That's God's grace. And God is better at that. God's better at giving grace than you are at sinning. But... Even though it's unmerited and it's undeserved, there is an access point to it, right? Here's what the rest of verse six says. But God gives more grace, more grace than your sin. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. So there's a way to stand in opposition to God. It's pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's the promise. God gives grace to the humble. I've heard a lot of definitions for humility, but my favorite I came across as I was studying this passage, and it said that humility is simply freedom from pride. I love that definition. I love that language, freedom from pride, because pride can be a prison, right? Pride can be a prison that traps us in this, this self-destructive cycle. And, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not talking about the pride that says, hey, don't worry about that. Hey, baby, don't worry. I, I can fix the plumbing, right? I got this. And then you're calling the plumber on the side, right? Because three patch jobs later, you ain't figured it out. Like, I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm talking about the kind of pride that keeps us from admitting our struggles. I'm talking about the kind of pride that keeps us from a place of saying, I've missed it. I've missed the mark. Man, I've tried finding, man, I want satisfaction. I've tried finding it, but I just, I can't. 
It seems like everything I've tried has kept me wanting more and more and more. And instead of acknowledging, instead of admitting that struggle, we keep painting the picture that we got it all together. And it's that pride that keeps us trapped in a prison where we can never experience the full grace of God. The unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Let me show you another promise. Verse 10, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God will exalt you. God exalts the humble. That's the second promise. God exalts the humble. The idea of exalting is to lift up, right? It is, it is to hold in high regard. It's a, it's a word picture of somebody who, who comes to another, bowed down on their face before them in brokenness, and that person reaches down and picks them back up. It literally means to restore the dignity of. You get it? God not only gives grace, he gives dignity to the humble. Man, if I admitted my struggles, what would people think of me? I don't know, but I know God will restore your dignity. Man, what would my reputation be if I actually prayed with somebody at church? If I actually admitted I don't have it all together? I don't know, but I know God has grace for you. And I know God has dignity for you. God has grace and dignity for the humble. For those that can find freedom from pride and acknowledge our struggles, acknowledge our inconsistencies, acknowledge even our flaws and our failures. There's grace and there's dignity for those that find freedom from pride. So what does that look like then? What does a heart that's free from pride, what does a humble heart look like? Well, in between these two verses, where, where we see these promises, verses seven through nine, there's a, there's a picture, I believe, of a humble heart, right? And so, so let me read this to you, right? James chapter four, verse seven says this, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And it's like, man, that sounds awful. Yes, but verse 10, God will exalt you. God will restore your dignity. There's five, I guess what I'll call directives, right? Like five commands, five statements in these verses that I think can show us, they signify to us what a, a heart free from pride, a, a humble heart looks like. First, James says to submit to God. And look, I'll acknowledge, okay, I understand that, that submitting is not a thing we tend, to, we tend to hold in high regard, Right? Like in a culture, in a world of self-reliance and you know, self-discovery, submitting not, does not typically rank high on the list of what we want in life. But can we, can we just acknowledge, like let's just be honest. You don't have to be honest right now with anybody other than yourself. Don't we all submit to something? We do. Like we're either submitting to a work schedule, a rec league schedule, you're submitting to cultural norms and expectations. You're submitting to what Instagram says you need to dress like. You're submitting to, to your boss. Like we're, we're all submitting to something. And all I want to contend for, all I want to argue, all I want to ask is, man, doesn't it make more sense to submit to something that will give grace and dignity instead of taking it away? 
Like everything that we submit to, everything that requires our time and our attention treats us like servants to that thing, except God, who treats us like sons and treats us like daughters. And so if we're gonna submit, doesn't it make more sense to submit to something where we'll find grace and dignity instead of giving it? So we submit, and then James says, to resist the enemy. And again, I, I love this language, to resist, because it's, it's actionable language. It's not passive language, right? It's not the idea of, and James is talking about temptation. He's talking about when, when, when the enemy brings temptation to us, he's not saying, all right, all you gotta do is close your eyes, go in the corner and pretend like it's not there. No, it's an actionable, it's a, it's a pressing against, it's a pushing against, right? It's to say, no, do something intentionally to resist. Like I think about the war and the conflict in, in Ukraine and how there's not, a passive hoping it doesn't affect me. No, there's an intentional resistance. Give me a weapon, I'm going to war, right? I'm pushing back, I'm taking territory back. And in the same way, scripture says, no, no, you have to resist, grab a weapon and push against the attacks of the enemy. Build disciplines and build guardrails around your life. Build a discipline of scripture, of prayer, find community, find people in your life that can help push against, to help resist the attacks of the enemy. He says, resist the enemy and he will flee from you. But here's the third thing, draw near to God and he will, God will draw near to you. That's the third promise we see in James chapter four, that if we will draw near to God, God will draw near to us. That God not only gives grace and God gives dignity to the humble, he gives his presence to the humble. I think about the parable of the prodigal son. There's a parable, a story that Jesus teaches in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of Luke, I think around Luke chapter 16. But, but it's a story where a son goes to his father and says, hey, dad, you know what? I, I, I just kind of want to pretend like you're dead. If you could give me the inheritance, I'm out. And he takes his inheritance and he goes to a foreign land and he lives it up. He parties, he lives a dream until everything comes crashing down around him. And he comes to this place where he says, man, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house were treated better than I have it right now. Maybe I can't be a son, but I'm gonna go back to dad. I'm gonna at least be a servant because at least I'll get paid better there. And so he, he has this reckoning and he goes back to his father's house and his father's waiting on the porch looking for his son and he sees his son coming from a long way off and he goes running after his son and when he gets to his son, he doesn't give him judgment. He gives him grace and he gives him dignity and he hugs him and he gives him his presence and he puts a robe on him and a ring back on him. He throws a party because my son who was once lost is now found in the same way. Listen to me. God does not run from your brokenness. He runs to it, to it with healing, to it with grace, to it with dignity. God is not afraid of the things that you are hiding in isolation. It is the enemy that will pull you into isolation, but it is God who desires presence and community. He said, I ain't scared of it. That shame, that guilt, that embarrassment, I'm not scared of it. Come on, bring it. And the great irony, right, the great irony of, of God's kingdom and God's economy is that it's when we come to God with nothing, understanding we have nothing to give is when we give or when we get everything. It's in our brokenness that we find healing. God says, come on, I've got more for you. More grace, more dignity. The last two things James says here 
He says to cleanse your hands. And he says to mourn and weep. To cleanse your hands, to mourn and weep. If you've ever heard anybody talk about the idea of repentance and kind of wondered what that means, this church word we use a lot, what does repentance mean? This is what it means. To cleanse your hands and to mourn and weep. It is the idea of a brokenhearted change. To seek change from a place of sadness, of brokenness, of understanding that, man, my choices, my actions, my thoughts, even though I thought it would bring satisfaction, it hasn't. And God, no longer, no longer do I want to pursue these temporary pleasures. God, I want you. I want to pursue your purpose in life. That's what repentance looks like. And so as we submit, as we resist, as we draw near to God and we find his presence, and as we find that, that brokenhearted change, we find God's grace, we find God's dignity, man, we find God's presence. Listen to me. God is not demanding your perfection before you ever come to him. But he does desire your presence. Draw near to me. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Here's my request of you. though: Don't take that step alone. Today you have a chance, right? To draw near to God in humility to bring maybe that shame, maybe that guilt, maybe that embarrassment, that brokenness, whatever that is. Those things you've been hiding in isolation, you have a chance to draw near to God, to bring that, in in freedom from pride, to bring that in humility. But listen to me, you don't gotta take it alone. Don't take that step alone. We'll have people today, if you're on campus with us, even church online, and we have people that are ready to pray with you, talk with you, help you find that next step. Draw near, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray in this moment, God, that there will be healing found, that there will be chains broken, that there will be addictions broken, God, that there will be pride broken in hearts and minds, God, that that freedom from that pride, that humility will be found. And in that humility, Lord, we will experience grace and dignity in your presence like never before. I pray that you'll give us the strength to take the steps that we need to take today to draw near to you. Lord, and in it all, you'll be glorified and you'll be honored. All things we ask in your name, amen. Thank you for joining us for the Venture Church Podcast. To find a campus near you, check out venturechurch.org.